Good morning, everybody. Good, that works. If you open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we'll look today at verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. While you're turning there, I just want to um, remind you that uh, those of you who are guests with us, either online or in person, that we just take books of the Bible and we walk through them in order that we might just allow God's Word to speak to us. And so we are plugging through the book of Romans in a series entitled, For the Love of God. And we find ourselves now, uh, having completed five chapters, we find ourselves now in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage and then I want to pray and I also want to take some time because we are a part of a church planting network, um, the Treasuring Christ Together Church Planting Network, to pray for some of those churches around the nation and around the globe that are worshiping the Lord right now and those who will be worshiping in some other difficult places that God would meet them in power. So I'll read, I'll pray, we'll dive in. The Word of God reads as follows. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That right now you are here. And in just a brief moment of silence, I pray that every one of us. Whatever is distracting our minds, whatever is a barrier between us and you. That we would surrender that to you in this moment. So, Father, in a moment of stillness, would you make us humble and contrite that we might tremble at your word? Let's just take this moment to give our hearts to the Lord, and then I'll continue in prayer.
So, Father, we ask that you would take us, all of us. We bring our fears. We bring our tears. We bring our pain. We bring our joys. We bring our successes. We bring all that we are. We lay it at your feet. And I pray we're able to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And I just ask, Father, for the many churches scattered around our nation that are preaching Christ and Him crucified, that are worshiping and going through the struggles of what it means to be human, what it means to live in a broken world. I pray for the TCT churches specifically, God, that You would meet them, that you would encourage them, that you would bless your word, that you would strengthen them in spiritual maturity and in growth. Father, I ask that you would unify their leaders. I pray that you would multiply their mission, that many would come to faith in Jesus through the sharing of Christ this morning and beyond. Father, thank you that we get to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to say loud and clear, this is not about the Treasuring Christ Church kingdom. This is about yours. And so may we say, with our lives, with our actions, we want your will to be done. Your kingdom to come, not our own. So Father, please move in our midst now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, when I was in high school, actually 13, moving into high school, I picked up tennis. I had gotten cut from basketball twice, and I had grown weary of baseball, and so I picked up tennis. While I was playing tennis, I saw that there was a gap. <laughs> A gap between where I was and where I wanted to go. But for whatever reason, call it, you know, just stupidity or whatever, I thought there was a way to, to shrink the gap between where I was and where I wanted to go, and I started working at it. I would, all throughout the summers, I would play a lot, hours upon hours upon hours. I would go through a pair of shoes every four to six weeks just playing tennis all the time because I was convinced that I could shrink the gap. And I actually, by God's grace, did shrink the gap a little bit. I got a little better. I started winning some. actually ended up going to a D3 school that got really desperate and brought me on to play tennis there. And so there was some gap closing that happened. And it was exciting to watch that happen. But, but the reason the gap closed, the reason I saw progress was because I acknowledged one thing. I wasn't where I needed to be. I actually acknowledged the gap. I said, there's a gap here. And then I went after it. And I had to give energy and effort. But it began by saying there is a gap. And a belief that that gap could be closed. We have a gap, spiritually speaking. The gap is between what we are promised and told about ourselves and our experience. 
I'm told that I'm new, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, and I'm secure. But I feel old, insecure, rejected at times, and like I don't measure up. One pastor described it this way. There was a chasm between what I said I believed and what I was experiencing. I felt discouraged by my lack of spiritual progress and exhausted by my efforts. I had seen enough of Jesus to spoil my enjoyment with the world, but not enough to be content with Jesus alone. And I didn't know how to move forward. I began to feel frustrated and then become cynical. I wondered if other people were reading the same Bible and sensed the same disconnect. I felt alone, and at times I felt like a fraud. Have you felt the gap? Some of us answer the gap by faking it really good. We've got it together. We don't acknowledge the gap to our own hearts and definitely not to others. Others answer the gap with despair and defeat. Nothing's ever going to change. It's just the way it is. Others of us answer the gap by beginning to question God Himself rather than ourselves. What do we do with the gap? How do we connect the God of the Bible and all of His promises with everyday life? With the ups and downs? Happy days and discouraged days. What is going to close the gap? I'm telling you, the way the gap begins to close is to acknowledge that the gap exists. It's just to be honest that you're not where you want to be and the picture that you see in the Scriptures is falling a little short of your experience at times and you just got to say, that's how I feel. That's what feels like is going on. There is a gap here. And when we have the courage to recognize it and admit it, that's the first step in closing the gap. I want to hold out hope for you today. The gap is being closed, and it's being closed despite your and my failures. The gap is being closed because you are united with Christ. The gap is answered because there is a mystery, something that is mystical, something that words kind of lose their ability to describe, and that is by faith alone, you are attached to Christ. You are in Him, and He is in you. You're united to Christ. And if we begin to acknowledge not only the gap, but acknowledge the supernaturality of God at work for His people, then we do not have to resign to being stuck. We do not have to resign that things will never change. We don't have to fake it. We can be ruthlessly honest and deeply hopeful. Because Christ is is bridging the gap. He has joined his life to ours through faith in Christ. Now, 
This is the point of the passage. There is a new life to be had in Christ. A new life that can be had. Now, as we dive into Romans chapter 6, verse 1, there's something that leads us here. And I just want us to stand amazed at grace. Okay? Just to stand amazed at grace. The way we begin to experience the power of our new life in Christ, which is the title of today's message. The power of our new life in Christ. The way we begin to experience that power begins with remembering amazing grace. Remembering all that God has done for us. So let's just do a little on-ramp work here prior to coming to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Summary of Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is where we see the words, when you trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and say, Jesus, I want you more than I want sin, your faith, you just receive all that God is for you in Christ. Here's the beauty. Justified by faith means you're not counted guilty. You are a sinner, yet you're not counted guilty. No matter what you have done, not guilty. Then he says, you have peace with God. That means, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Romans chapter 9, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it means you're not enemies. His wrath has been averted. It was put on to Jesus. We get his favor, his pleasure, his peace, his affection for us. We have peace with God. We also then, at Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we're reconciled to God, which means we are now friends and we are called family. This is amazing grace because what makes it grace is that it is not because of what you've done that you get all these things. It's despite of what you've done that you get all these things. You get peace with God, reconciliation with God, being in the family of God, being declared not guilty because Christ walked in your stead. He was obedient when you were not. And the greatest news in all the world is we have the hope of glory. That this world does not get the final word. We're going to be with Christ forever one day. So it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is ours in Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Now Romans chapter 5 goes on. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says this, Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law comes in to start putting names to our sinful actions. Covetousness, idolatry, adultery, deceit, lust, greed, anger, stealing. It gets names. And now when we start walking around in the world, our actions that we might have been tempted to sweep under the rug, they've got names, and those names say that's against God. So when the law came in, it was like it blossomed our sin because we became more aware that we were sinners. It's like climbing this insurmountable mountain. That the higher you climbed, the mountain, like in Pilgrim's Progress, it seems to almost bend backwards on top of you so that it crushes you. And what you see is the more you try, 
the more you see your failures, your poor motives, your lack of love, your pride. The mountain is too high to climb, and the law says so. My sin is too gross. It's too big to solve myself. And honestly, you will never experience the setting freeness of grace until you get there. Until you are totally devoid of a self-salvation project and you acknowledge what is true. My life is gross apart from Christ. And no matter how high I climb to try to do a betterness job of justifying myself, it only comes back to crush me. But when we get there, to a spot of helplessness, you begin to hear good news. Christ has intervened. You are not left to yourself. This is the gospel. Romans 5 tells us that where Adam failed, then we in Adam, that we're sinners by nature and by choice. We're sinners by nature and that we're in Adam and all of us choose to sin. Double sinners, locked in sin, unable to get out. What is our hope? As Pastor Ranjour said last week, where Adam failed, Christ excelled. That's our hope. That's our hope. The argument of Romans 5 is sin seems like a really big deal, and you need to hear Christ is a bigger deal. Not sin isn't that bad, Christ is just that good. This is the gospel. He was obedient in our disobedience. He was righteous in our unrighteousness. Christ is God where we are ungodly. Christ is love where we are unlovely. Christ is glorious where we fall short of the glory of God. There could not be two opposite ends of the spectrum, us and Christ. So we can be honest and agree with the Bible, not only about our badness, but about Jesus' goodness, about His glory, about His sufficiency, about His love. This is the gospel, friends, that Christ has come. The law turned up the volume on our sin, and all Christ does is comes up and says, I'm going to turn the volume up louder on me. I am louder than Christ. And here's the greatness of grace. The bigger the mess of our sin, the bigger the grace is. The worse our sin, the greater grace comes in and makes wrongs right and brings healing to our wounds and gives victory to our loss and hope to despair. Grace covers sin. We are not guilty in Christ. Grace is always bigger than our sin, and it is not ours because we do good for God, but we receive it by faith, this free gift of God. It is all by grace. And here's what gets us to Romans 6. If it's that free, and that good, and that total, and no matter what I do, I am forgiven, then how in the world does that not lead to a life of just, let's keep sinning so grace keeps coming? How does such free grace not lead to a life of license to sin? Because if it's that amazing, let's sin that grace keeps looking bigger. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
That's the argument. I remember I was a pastor. Uh, I was a youth director at Open Door Baptist Church. And as I was a youth director there, I remember being in their old annex building in this back little kitchen with some teenagers. And we were talking about, we were talking about their, we were reading the Bible, talking about their struggles and stuff, and just talking about why does it seem like we give in to sin a lot. And one teenager just said, I'll never forget it. It just etched my brain because I was grown up differently. I was grown up in a legalistic background that the way you solve your sin is to keep doing for God in hopes that he would accept you. But he came with a totally different perspective. And he says, I keep sinning because I just know God will forgive me. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? How can we keep doing that? But he was honest, and I appreciated it. In one sense, he probably understood grace better than I did. But in another sense, he didn't understand it at all. Grace is free. But here's what's interesting. This objection is not simply, let's sin more. This objection is, God has called us clearly to a life of holiness. Paul, if you keep preaching such free grace... It is going to undermine the church because it's going to crush all holiness. Nobody's going to pursue holy living. They're going to live in grace. They're going to live sinning all they want to. What's going to happen to the holiness of God's people? Paul, you can't keep preaching the freeness of grace. And here's what's good is that he doesn't back off of preaching free grace. He just tells the objectors why that's not, what, that's not going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. Why is that not going to happen, you might ask? Why will our holiness continue? Why will we run towards Jesus and not towards sin if grace has really come into our lives? Well, because God's grace not only forgives sin, but it delivers us from sinning, says John Stott. God's grace not only forgives sin, but delivers us from sinning. Dear friends, we can't continue in sin because, one, we have a changed life. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 2. By no means. <laughs> it's not going to happen with the followers of Jesus that they just stomp on grace. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What's he arguing? Something has radically changed in the life of a believer. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He is arguing there is a changed life. A changed life that changes the trajectory of how you live. It's a changed heart. I just think about the senses. I think about the senses. It changes how you see things. It's like you once swam in a pool, and you were like, this is great. I love swimming. And then all of a sudden, someone told you, oh, wait, that's sludge and toxic water. And then now all of a sudden, you can't help but see that's not good. You see it differently. When Christ comes in, He changes your vision. He shows you what's beautiful and what's bad. Your vision changes. 
Your hearing changes. Your mind changes. People reading the Scriptures couldn't understand. And although it's still hard to understand at times, there's more understanding now because Christ lives inside and He will continue to grow your knowledge in Him. You have a changed life. But the passage goes on to say, not only will we not continue in sin because we have a changed life, a changed heart, changed desires, reorientation of our thinking and our vision and our hearing and what we want to live our lives for, we will not continue in sin because a death has occurred, point two. We will not continue in sin because a death has occurred. What's that death? It's a death to sin's penalty and a death to sin's ability to enslave. A death to sin's penalty and a death to sin's ability to enslave. Look at the Scripture. Verse 2. By no means will we continue in sin How can we who, what's the next word? Died. Okay, let's try to participate just a little bit more. Doing that for your own good and mine. Here we go. How can we who died? That's right. This audience is very much alive. They're alive. They're reading this, right? It'd be pretty pointless to write a letter to dead people, you know, that can't read the letter that you're writing. These people are very much alive, and yet they have very much died. We who died to sin. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, what is our physical baptism? Our physical baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality that our lives have been immersed In the grace of God, we have died to our sins and He has raised us up to new life. And our physical baptism is not simply a first step of obedience. It is a declaration of identification with Jesus that we have died to sin and we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Listen to those words. Do you not know? Verse 3. That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. There's some type of death that has happened when we trusted in Christ that our physical baptism was a picture of. You follow so far? I haven't described what the death is yet, but do you follow so far? Verse 4, we were buried, more death imagery, therefore with Him by baptism into death. And let's keep going. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with Him in a, what's the next word? Death like His. Now keep going. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, do you get the point? (laughs) He wants us to be really clear that a death has occurred. Really clear. And if you're anything like me, that's not clear to me. It's fuzzy. What does that mean? How does that matter when I leave this place and live day to day? 
What is this death? This death is something final. Isn't that what death is? Something so final it's been buried. This death is final. What is it? It's death to sin's penalty. Death to the just condemnation that my sin deserves. And we have been set free from condemnation. He'll go on to say, Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict has been rendered. You will not be under condemnation on that last day, but you will have been given eternal life. He's paid the penalty. We've died in Christ. He was our representative. He died. We trust in Him. We get all of the benefits of His death. One author says that this is such a foreign concept that Paul actually had to make up words in order to help us understand it. This word, buried with, crucified with, raised with, other passages, seated with. These were words that did not exist in the normal Greek language, and yet he puts the word that exists with buried, throws the word with in front of it, puts it together, and says something different is happening here. And that something different is Jesus, our representative, goes before us. All that we did not, all that we deserve, we do not get. All that we don't deserve, we do get because he's won the victory and he is in us and we are in him. It is called union with Christ. And so I want to go to the boxes. The boxes. What we have here are not one. Not two, but three boxes. The Bible says this, that we, this is going to be us, so if I was able to use my other hand, this would be a little easier, so <laughs> one sec. This is us. You got it? Okay. You and me. The Bible says, when we trust in Christ, something happens. He says that Christ Christ comes and lives inside of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The passage that we read, it says, you are with Christ. And it goes on to say that we must consider ourselves, look at verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ lives in us this is the hope that one day we are going to be with him forever. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
But there's something else that happens when we trust in Christ. It says that not only is Christ in us, but that verse I just read says that we are what? In Christ. So, what we have here We have Christ. I'm going to move it over here because I can't do it. And we are in Christ. When God sees us, it says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed in Christ. So that when the judgment that we deserve comes at us, it hits Christ. And Christ takes the punishment that we deserve. It is His that He bore. He is our representative so that the judgment hits Him and not us and we are protected in Christ. And not only are we protected in Christ, but Christ lives inside of us so that we have hope for the glory that is to come. This is the image in some way of our union in Christ Jesus. The penalty that should be ours, has hit Christ, and therefore we are protected in Him. This illustration was so helpful for me as I got it from David Platt, so I want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. But in this image, what is happening here is that not only are we protected from sin's penalty, but we are also We've died to sin's penalty, but we've died to sin's ability to enslave us. Look at the passage. We know, look at verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His because we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been what? Set free from sin. There is a death that has occurred, not only to the penalty that should be ours because of sin, but a death has occurred to sin's ability to win in the end. A death has occurred to sin's ability to enslave us and shackle us. Let's go back to my tennis days a second. When I was in college playing tennis, there were two things that happened. One is I began to realize that I had almost reached my ceiling. (laughs) What I wanted to see happen That gap was really never going to get closed. Only could get so far. What happens when you begin to realize that is you begin to lose hope. You begin to lose try. And so what happened is I just began to get affections and desires for other things. Thankfully, in that season of life, that was a season when God really gripped me with His Word. And I began to pursue relationships that grew me in His Word more. I began still imperfectly to find less value in what people thought about me as a tennis player and more value of what it meant to be in Christ. 
And so I pulled away from tennis. But here's what we need to understand spiritually. Many of us act as if we have reached our spiritual ceiling. And therefore, in hopelessness, we believe the gap will never be closed. It will never shrink. And so we quit. We quit. What we do is we say growth is going to be minimal. And we become defeatists. I'll never grow in this area. Things will always be this way. What's the point of trying? So we begin to taper off. This is the gap. But friends, I've got a better story for you. This is completely unlike tennis and the real reality that I was not going to get much better. This is a different story. The story here is Christ is always, always at work closing the gap in his children's life because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We have not only died to the penalty of judgment that should be ours, we have died in the sense that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Slave does not get the final word. It will not have the final victory. Christ is the victor. And it is His power at work in our lives. Jesus inside of you, the hope of glory. And this is in part what Paul is saying when he says you have been united with Him in a death like His. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer enslaved but set free. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new boss in the heart. A new king on the throne. And He is always, always loving you always for you, always powerful enough, always wise enough, always generous enough, always keeping His promises, and He's always in you. That's never going to be ripped apart. No matter your despair, no matter the suffering that happens to you, no matter your sin, you will always have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when that happens... And you begin to believe that I don't have to resign. I don't have to live defeated. But I actually am promised that I will grow. I will grow. Even in the very area that seems to have me most paralyzed, I will not be the same person tomorrow that I am today. There, therefore, is hope. And hope is the fuel for try. When you lose hope, you quit. And many of us have lived the Christian life quitting. Believing we've reached our spiritual ceiling and not believing these words that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Many of you, you are believing the opposite of what this passage is saying. Practically, you're willing to quit and just kind of live the status quo. And I'm telling you, there is so much more for us in Christ. So much more for us in Christ. Sin will not get the last word. Can I tell you how encouraged I am? We have Bible study on Tuesday mornings. Pastor Travis leads a Bible study. Many of those in that Bible study are 60 and over. And you know what encourages the mess out of me? What encourages me 
is that they have not bought into the lie that we have reached our potential and that they've maxed out. They are convinced that there's more to learn. There's more knowledge to be had. But I would argue much deeper than just I need to know more facts because I've seen their lives. I've watched their lives grow in sacrifice, deep in love, because the thing about growing in Christ is never solely growing in knowledge. It is growing in humility. It is growing in love. It is growing in joy. It is growing in sacrifice. And that's something that God is doing. He is not just making you smarter. He is making you into His image. And that's the hope that we have. He is working. He's working. And may we not buy into the lie, no matter what stage you are in life, that you have maxed out. We resign ourselves that our potential is done. And Paul is saying, we will not continue to choose sin over Christ in the same ways that we used to because a death has occurred. We will not continue to choose sin over Christ in the same ways, in the same degree, because a death has occurred. But that's what leaves us to quit. You muster it up. You hear a sermon like this. Yes, there's power in me. I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to treat them like that anymore. I'm not going to say those kind of words anymore. I'm not going to prize my job over Jesus anymore. I'm not going to live for the paycheck anymore as a soul means. I'm going to be a loving person. Let's do it. Yeah, let's go. And then what happens? Two weeks, two days, two hours from now, all of a sudden, something's happened in the heart. And it makes you think your experience tells you something opposite of what I'm saying here. That the gap's still too wide, too big, never going to be crossed. Basically, your experience is calling Jesus a liar. And I'm telling you, your experience is not telling you the truth. Jesus is still at work because when you fail or mess up one time, all of a sudden you say, that's who I am. Look, there I go again. And you just resign. Reach the ceiling, max capacity, never going to grow. And I'm telling you, the scriptures say something completely different by faith in Christ. Christ in you. You in Christ. Protected and empowered. You've died. A death has occurred. You've died to the penalty, but you've also died to the fact that sin will enslave you. Paul Tripp in his book, Suffering, its, it's title talks about some of us who quit, not solely just because we keep failing in the same areas, but because we keep experiencing the same things, that is suffering. And some of us can quit because we have made suffering our identity. I will always be this. Suffering is who I am. And Paul Tripp encourages us with, there's even a way to rethink about the suffering that happens to us. And here's what he says. When you have small expectations and have assigned to yourself little potential, in many ways you just quit living. That's one result of letting what you suffer become your identity. It determines your actions. Why does one person step forward and face the hard thing while the other runs away? The answer is clear. One has hope and the other doesn't. 
Why is one person active in the middle of difficulty while the other seems paralyzed by it? Well, one sees his or her potential in the storm. The other is convinced his or her potential is small. The identity you assign to yourself determines how you assess your expectations, how you measure your potential, how you act, react, and respond to your everyday situations and relationships. This is why it is so important for you to fight the temptation to let what you suffer define who you are. And so I want to hold out for you. The reason we have hope in our suffering is because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Paul is even able to say, this light and momentary affliction that we are experiencing just doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed. We are not defined by our suffering, even though we experience suffering. We are in Christ, and there is potential, expectation, that God is always at work within us. And so he says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in what? Yep, we are tired. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's new life coming. Look at verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Look at verse 10. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. There is a new life. There's not only a death that's occurred, but a resurrection has occurred. There's new life that's ours. And if there's new life, friends, that means two things. A new purpose and a new power. When Christ comes and lives in you, there's a new allegiance. There's a new direction. There's a new purpose. And for some of you, you believe that the only way that you can fulfill that purpose is to go into formal public ministry, and God has called some of you to do that, but I want to hold out that that doesn't mean everybody else who's not vocationally in a pastor or something like that is now second-tier Christian. No, this is said to the church in general that all of us now have been given a new direction in life, which means our nursing It means our medical work. It means that our teaching work. It means that our staying at home and caring for the kids work. It means that all the work that we do, no matter what you manage or where you find yourself at in employment, that has got a new purpose, a new direction, because there's a new life at work in you. And it is called a new life in Christ. I am living unto Christ. Do not minimize the work you do if you are not in some time, some type of full vocational work that is ministry related. Jesus says that you've been raised to a new life, as it says in the passage, verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. And then it says in verse 10, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So the Christ in you is living to God, and therefore, no matter what you do, you're living to God. There's a new purpose in your life, the ability to walk in newness of life. 
But I also want you to know there's a new power. There's a new power. It is persistent. It is indwelling. And that power is not an it. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit of God. When we say Christ in you, it is the Spirit of Christ who comes to live inside of you. And now we have a new hope that you will never be alone. He is always with you. And friends, I just also want you to notice one thing that you might have missed. When you look at this, sadly, this is sometimes how we view the Christian life. I'm on an island all alone. Have you looked at the words used in Romans 6? We. 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 We're united with Christ. So what should be on this box is not simply you and your relationship to Jesus, but something crucial to live in the new power that Christ has purchased for you on Calvary. It's not only Christ in you, the hope of glory, singular, but it's also Christ in us, the hope of glory, as the church. So, more drawing. It's us. It's the church. And all the way around. In Christ. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ. Christ in us. Some of the reasons we don't, we constantly feel enslaved is that we are walking this road alone. And God has designed the church as the people in which we honestly acknowledge the gap and we press one another to acknowledge the hope that we have in Christ. That's why he ends this passage in verse 11. So you also must consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Like this is the self-talk. I'm defeated. I don't th- I'm anxious. I don't think things are going to go well. I just don't know what to do. Here's the talk. So this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. I have died to sin, which means I'm not under the judgment of God. I'm dead. I've died with Christ to the penalty that is mine. Also, this sin that seems to constantly get me. I've died to that enslavement. In Christ, I've died to that. He's a work in me. There is a death that has occurred. And so now we not only consider his death, we consider his life. And we say, he is alive. And he's alive in me. I've got a new purpose, a new direction. And there's a new power within me. Christ in me, but also he has given us the church. Christ in us. That we might live to God in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, May we consider, may we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And may we go living in hope because sin does not get the final word. We will see Christ one day forever. And he is with us, inside of us, always, always, always.
Let's pray in hope. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that you do not leave us alone. You don't save us and then tell us to get our own act together. The gospel is too big. Grace is too wonderful. You don't just get us in the door. You promise that grace sustains us all the way until we see you face to face. You are always at work in our lives. And so I pray that we know how to answer the objector. We don't diminish grace. We are just convinced that grace is so strong, we will not continue in sin. We will not walk in unholiness, but that we will keep fighting because Christ is fighting in us to look more and more like Jesus. And so I thank you. I thank you that you are at work in your people to constantly make us look more like the family, to make us more look like our Heavenly Father. Please remove our despairing hearts and cause us to believe that you are constantly at work, closing the gap until we see you face to face and the gap will be completed and we will be sinning no more. We'll be completely brand new. And so, Father, I pray in all of our brokenness and all of our pain that we don't walk around in despair, but in hope. And help us to push each other towards that hope. I want you just to take a minute to reflect on what's one thing the Lord is bringing to your mind by the Spirit. What's the Lord bringing to your mind by the Spirit? Something to confess. A hope to declare. Give Him your fears, your tears, your pains, your joys, whatever it is, I pray right now that you would just spend this time asking the Lord what He wants to teach you. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.